0: It's time to play like a jet. With your host, Scott Mason.
1: Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up,
0: floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it! They're not gonna catch him! He's gonna go the distance!
2: Touchdown! Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson! 92 yards! And a touchdown! Bell into the middle of that line. And it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder.
0: 85 yards. Passed thrown. There was contact with a quarterback and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who
2: came blitzing in. he hit, hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know what? <laughs> the Qinator. <laughs> oh my gosh! Hey, Adam, listen, thank you.
3: From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter, at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's time for the weekend mailbag. So for that, we welcome in the owner, the operator, the lead reporter, the whole shebang over at JetsInsider.com. And of course, above all of that, a very big deal, Mr. Chris Nimbly. So let's jump right into the mailbag. Question comes in from Michael Pallison. and it's the first of a series of questions. He says, assuming the Jets re-signed Beecham, How would you attack the acquisition of the other four starting offensive line spots, mostly free agency, mostly draft or 50-50? First of all, I'm pretty sure Beecham's gone, so that's not the guy that I think sticking around. You're much more likely to see Alex Lewis stick around, I think, than Beecham. I think Alex Lewis may re-sign. They already have Harrison, so I think you'll have those two guys as at least potential starters. Same with Adoga. I think those three will at least be in the mix for starting spots. And then they're going to go into free agency and try and add some players, talk to about Conklin before maybe somebody like Joe Thune and then they're going to go Into the draft and probably draft two To three offensive linemen minimum you May see more than that depending on what they do In the late rounds but that's more or Less how I think it's going to happen
2: Yeah I I can't uh, I can't go along with the Assume Beecham is going to Be brought back because I I don't see him coming back And um, I don't I don't see him wanting to be back um, I, I don't think he wants anything to do with uh, with Adam Gates and this offense. Now, I think he wants to look somewhere else. So I, I can't go along with uh, with that line of thinking. But yeah, again, I'll just say that I think they need to get a, an offensive tackle in free agency and an inside guy in free agency and do the same in the draft. And um, yeah, I, I I think Alex Lewis will probably be brought back. We know Harrison and Doga are already here and under contract. Um, so depending on what they, what they do there, those three guys could be starting. But I, in an ideal world, Joe Douglas is gonna get uh, four people that he thinks can come in and can, uh, he can plug and play. Um, we'll have to see even after you know the free agent signings are made and the picks are made, how it shakes out in training camp. But that if if he can do that, that will be a good thing to have, and then you can use those guys as depth. Because if you if you're talking about any of those three, Adoga, uh, Alex Lewis, Jonathan Harrison, if you're talking about them as depth pieces, you you're pretty happy. If you're talking about them starting, okay, then there's there's potential weak spots there. But as depth pieces, you're pretty happy with those guys.
3: Next question comes from Michael Christopher. He says, what coach, retired or still coaching, do you think Gase is most similar to? Doing this in the mold of a prospect profile where you take a draft prospect and compare him to a current or former player. Also, who is more hated by their fan base, Bill O'Brien in Houston or Adam Gase with the Jets? And if the Texans offered a trade of O'Brien for Gase and Douglas, would you do it? So let's start with the first one. Who does Gase remind you of? In a lot of ways, in terms of just coaching, he reminds me a little bit of Eric Mangini. And I don't necessarily mean from the X's and O's standpoint. I mean from being inflexible, from having to do things his way, from getting guys in the doghouse, from devaluing players and then shipping them out. There's a lot of that. From not learning from his past mistakes as well, from thinking that he invented the game of football. That's one guy who comes to mind when I think about Adam Gase. Unfortunately for Adam Gase, he doesn't seem to have Eric Mangini's eye for talent because that's one thing that Mangini was great at. If you look at the roster building when Mangini was here, it was terrific. It was the best roster building That they had done in a really long time. I don't think Gase has that in him. I'm talking about just his tendency to be the quote-unquote CEO and his style. Then as far as Bill O'Brien, this is an interesting question. I would say that Gase has to be more hated than O'Brien. Simply because O'Brien has brought the Texans to the playoffs a bunch of times. I know that a lot of Texans fans are super frustrated with him and would like him gone. But I don't think it's reached the level that Jets fans are at with Gase. And no, I wouldn't do that trade because while I would certainly prefer O'Brien to Gase, I would prefer to hang on to Joe Douglas because I think if Gase has a really bad year, he could be out of here. And then why would you trade a guy who I think could be a really good general manager for a head coach that I don't really like? So there's your answers to those questions. Chris, let's start with the first one for you. Which coach comes to mind when you think of Adam Gase?
2: I'm going to repeat my... uh... My quarterback to coach comparison and uh, about Adam Gase being a the Andy Dalton of coaches. Uh, I, I like that, but uh, I I could probably, if I sat here and thought about it long enough, I could probably come up with a better one. But ironically, I think my comp for Gase as a coach is Bill O'Brien, and I I really think the only difference. Between Gase and O'Brien is O'Brien has better uh, talent to work with. I I definitely agree with you that uh, Gase is mo- more hated, just because when you go to the playoffs as much as the Texans do, there's going to be a, a enough people out there who just say, "Oh, but he's got he's gotten to the playoffs," even though it's like, "Yeah, he's gotten to the playoffs," but like he got into the playoffs a lot of years just because that division was just an absolute joke. Uh, he got in the playoffs this year because there was just that much talent on the team, um, but yeah, I, I I do like and follow your your thinking on the Mangini thing. Obviously, you already made the point to exclude the talent acquisition because that's where M- Mangini really shined. I'm I'm struggling to think of like a good uh, another good comp for him that, but. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to go with Bill O'Brien and, not, and no, I wouldn't. I mean, no, I wouldn't do that because even I want to say that, uh, you know, maybe he'd have better relations with the players, but I don't know that that's necessarily true either. I just think Gase's, Gase's problems are a little more public.
3: Next question comes in from The Senatorial. He says, do you think it's more likely the Jets trade up to grab an offensive tackle or trade down for more value and picks? I think it depends on how the board breaks and also depends on the offers that they would be getting. But I will say this, and I've said it before. I absolutely would strongly consider jumping up to number nine ahead of the Browns, if need be, to get a tackle if there's one that I like that was still on the board. And I know that everybody hates trading draft picks, and don't get me wrong, I don't love it, but you could probably do it for either your own third-round pick or your fourth-rounder and that Kansas City sixth-rounder. And to me, if you see a tackle there that you think could be on that offensive line at a fairly high level for the next 8 to 15 years— There's no sense in losing out on that guy just because you didn't want to give up one of those picks. You got to go ahead and do it, in my mind, if that's how the board falls. As far as if they sit at 11 and say all of those guys are gone by the time they get to 11... I'm sure that they would consider trading down if a decent offer came. Otherwise, I think they're probably most likely to go edge rusher rather than wide receiver. But, yeah, I think there's a chance they would trade up. Joe Douglas showed you that last year with Philly. He really liked Andre Dillard, so he got aggressive, and he went up and he got him. I think if there's an offensive lineman that he really likes who's still there around eight or nine and he knows he has to jump the Browns, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he does it.
2: I'd be a little surprised uh, I if I think it's more likely that they trade he he would trade down. I think that's a much more likely scenario. If he does trade up, I don't see him trading up any higher than nine. I think that would be the spot what he would do. But I think he just knows and now and this is this is a assessment on just this draft, just this year. I think down the road he would be more inclined to make a move to trade up for the right player in the right situation. But I think just because of how many holes they, this team has, and, and again, especially, especially on the offensive line, how much resources need to be put into fixing that, I think that he's going to want – he'd be more likely to want to get extra draft picks than to get uh, to give up draft picks to get one guy. Now, this could change maybe. Again, let's say he gets Conklin and Thoney in free agency, and then he says, okay – let me get one of these other tackles, and then that's a hell of a, a job rebuilding this offensive line in one season. Maybe, maybe that's the situation. Again, I don't, I don't think he'd trade up higher than nine. Um, I just think the way it'll pr- most likely shake out, it would be more likely that he would trade down. Um, but it, I, I'm not ruling out either. But again, ruled, I, I'm pretty, pretty close to ruling out completely that he'd trade up higher than nine.
3: I don't think he would trade up much higher than nine, maybe eight or seven, but I think that's a stretch. I think most likely he would try to just jump the Browns, which makes a lot of sense. And it leads to our next question from Randy Sherman. He says, are there any players worth it for the Jets to trade up for in this year's draft? I think it really depends how the board falls, but obviously if there's one of those tackles that Joe Douglas really likes and he's available at 9 and you know that he's going to the Browns at 10, I think that's a scenario where you could see Joe Douglas jump up. Like I said, I don't think the cost would be that great. The draft value chart shows that it would either be a 4th and a 6th or a 3rd. I think that's doable, so I think that's what you should keep your eye on in terms of if the Jets are going to trade up.
2: Yeah, if, if there's a player they're trading up for it's gonna be one of the offensive linemen. Period. End of sentence, end of paragraph, end of everything. That's it. They're not they're not gonna trade up for uh one of the receivers. They're not gonna trade up for an edge. I, I just I just don't see that. Uh if they're gonna trade up at all, I, I think it would be for one of the offensive linemen and, and it'll be worth it. Uh especially like you just said with the now, the draft chart, once you get that high, you probably got to do a little bit more. But if you could do, you know, one of those thirds and a fourth next uh, next draft or something along those lines and, you know, three of those guys are gone, but you want the fourth or uh, the, there's just one uh, guy left on that Joe Douglas really likes, then I think it would be worth it. And again, especially if uh, he's able to get two guys in free agency, so.
3: I should also add that as far as I can tell in terms of Jets' needs and quality of play, the only two defensive players that I think it would be worth trading up for, I'm not even saying I would do it. I'm just saying in terms of how good they are and Jets' needs are Chase Young and Jeff Okuda, and I think both of them are going to be long gone by the time the Jets would be picking at 11. So the Jets would have to trade all the way up into the top five. I don't see that happening at all.
2: If you're doing that, you're going to probably just go and take one of those offensive linemen up there.
3: That would be my guess, but I don't think he's going to get that adventurous anyway.
2: Agree.
3: Next question comes in from John McAnally. He says, this is an interesting theoretical, Chris. If you could take the 2018-2019 Darnold and put him on the 2009-2010 Jets, would they have made it to or won a Super Bowl? I'm going to say no, and here's my rationale for this. I think that perhaps you could make a case that the Jets would have won more games each of those two seasons in the regular season with Darnold rather than Sanchez. However, they would not have won enough games to overtake the Patriots for the division. Therefore, they would have been a wild card, and they would have had to go on the road and win all road games anyway. Mark Sanchez played very well in the playoffs, so you would have to think that Darnold would not only play better than Sanchez did in the playoffs— But he would also have to completely outshine him in those AFC championship games. And remember, we're talking about games where the Jets came very close. It's impossible to know whether or not Darnold would have been able to even have a lead against the Colts at halftime. Because, again, Sanchez struggled in that Steelers game. And in the second half, he was obviously outdone by Peyton Manning, but who's to say that Darnold's doing any better there? So I think that it's possible the Jets would have actually done worse in the playoffs with Darnold than Sanchez because Sanchez stepped up. No idea what his playoff performances would have looked like. Obviously, it's certainly possible that they could have made it to the Super Bowl, but I think that's a really big leap. The big thing that I keep coming back to is the fact that regardless of what Darnold did, it wasn't going to be enough, based on what we saw these first two years, to overtake the Patriots for the division. And so, since they were going to have to have all these road games, I don't know that there was going to be anything different, or certainly not different in a positive direction. I think, if anything, based on how Sanchez played in those playoffs, there's a decent chance that the Jets would have been eliminated sooner rather than
2: later. This is a uh, th- this is an excellent question. This is a fun question. Uh, I I love the what if scenarios. My immediate reaction is probably the same as most listeners would be like, yeah, there's a better chance because Darnold's a better quarterback than Sanchez. But I instantly had the same uh, thought, went through the same thought process that you did as yes. Regular season, they would have been a lot better. Probably had a uh, offensively, at least they probably would have had more wins, but Sanchez played really well in those playoff games. So it, Maybe Darnold could have played even better, but that. That'd be asking a lot. Um, obviously, you have a, a huge advantage in the offensive line of that team versus the offensive lines that Darnold has been playing uh, behind. So maybe that would have been enough to have Darnold play even better than Sanchez. But that you can't just assume that because um, while I I talk, I've said this for years and years and you know over a decade now. As much as People talked about Sanchez holding the team back. That was absolutely the case in the regular season, not so much in the playoffs because he did step it up and play well in the playoffs. I don't know if it's realistic to just assume that Darnold would absolutely have played uh, better than him in the playoffs. It's certainly possible, but uh, it's also possible that he wouldn't have played as good as him there. So um, I, I, I'll i say no. that it, And also that Steelers game, it, like, yes, yeah, Sanchez struggled in the first half, but, man, that whole team was just came out flat in that first half. And I don't think Darnold would have been enough to make a huge change in that. Um, So I'd probably say no, but that would be a fun hypothetical. You know, if you could peek into an alternate dimension to see an alternate timeline to see how that would have played out, that that would be interesting.
3: Next question comes in from Alex Arroyo. This is interesting. He says, let's say the top four offensive tackles are off the board. Judy and Lamb are still there, and Amari Cooper leaves Dallas. Dallas has the 17th overall pick. They call you and offer their one and two to jump up from 17 to 11 to grab Judy or Lamb as the replacement for Cooper. Would you do it? I would probably want a little more than the second round pick. I might want a second and a fourth or a second and a fifth. I'd have to look at the draft value chart. But I'd certainly be willing to trade down to 17 because I think – you could get those extra picks, add more pieces, and then you could probably draft somebody like Josh Jones who may not be ready to start day one, but I think long range could be a really good tackle in the NFL. So, yeah, I would absolutely look to trade down if that's the scenario that you're talking about and the Cowboys were interested in moving up to get Judy or Lamb.
2: Yeah, I would absolutely do that. Um, I would, like you, I would try to get a little bit more, but if I couldn't get a little bit more, and that's that's it, that's the offer, that's the best the offer is going to get then yeah, I'd do that. I'd jot down six spots, pick up a second round pick at that point. Yeah, I I would absolutely do that.
3: Next question comes in from Justin Gray. He says, who would win a cage match between Adam Gase and Manish Mehta? Ooh, this is an interesting one. So here's the answer I'm going to give. I'm going to give you two different answers. The first one is the shoot fight cage match answer. So if we're talking about a shoot fight, Adam Gase would rip Manish limb from limb And it's mostly because Gase is a psychopath So that's not the kind of guy that you want to face in a fight Because he'll stop at nothing He'll just rip you to shreds Now, if we're talking about pro wrestling steel cage Let me tell you how this would play out Gase would be dominating Manish And the whole crowd would be booing or cheering or whatever they're doing And then as Gase was showboating Instead of leaving the cage A masked man with a hoodie would show up, throw a cup of coffee in Gase's face, Gase would go down, Manish would escape the cage. He would then hug and high five the masked man who would rip off his mask to reveal Mike McCagnan, getting revenge for Adam Gase shoving him out of power. Then you would see this whole thing take a crazy turn because you would see old nemesis show up of each guy. So for instance, you would see Muhammad Wilkerson and Darrell Rivas show up to interfere on behalf of Adam Gase. And then on the other end of things, you might see Devontae Parker and Jarvis Landry show up and help out Manish. Gase would always have the upper hand though because he would have all these contraptions and weapons and all this high-priced, high-technology strategy. And we would wonder, where is he getting the money for all this? we do know he's rich as F as he says but still there's got to be somebody behind all this and we would find out that the secret benefactor was actually Peyton Manning all along helping Adam Gase. This would all culminate at the very end in a loser leaves town match where the two men would rip each other apart until finally Jets fans would storm the ring chase both guys out. And Manish and Adam Gase would both be driven from the territory. So that's how that would play out in a pro wrestling scenario. As far as an actual shoot fight in a cage match, though, Adam Gase would rip Manish in half.
2: Yeah, I'm going to start this off by saying um, Manish is like one of those like, low-key jack kind of people. Like not super jacked, but he's more jacked than you think. But he's losing this. Um, <laughs> he's losing this. Uh, cra- crazy's going to win. Um, and Adam Gase is, is crazy, and crazy is going to win. Uh, he's he, he, I mean, uh, he's winning this fight. There, there, there's no doubt about it. You put him in the cage, and, and Adam Gase is winning it. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Play like a jet. Play like a jet.
3: Next question comes in from Peter J. Dillard. He says, gentlemen and straight up gangsters, do you think maybe we have it all wrong? Maybe we should be blaming Williams and Boyer. The usurper was clearly trying to tank By putting out a league-worst offense, those guys (laughs) deviated and undermined the genius. Also, who is a better fighter, Ray Leonard or Floyd Mayweather? (laughs) I love this. Damn, Peter, you are the best. Yeah, I think you've got a point. I think Williams and Boyer were undermining Gase's tank strategy all along by trying to do a good job and win football games. Gase, once again, was playing 4D chess. He was 12 steps ahead of everybody. 100% that's what happened there. As far as who was a better fighter between Ray Leonard and Mayweather, it's funny, I've had this discussion many times. I think Ray Leonard was the better fighter. I also think he would beat Floyd Mayweather in a head-to-head if we're taking best versus best. There's a variety of reasons there. First of all, Ray Leonard was the naturally bigger, stronger man, but also everything that Mayweather could do, Ray Leonard could do better. He was a much better offensive fighter too than Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather was a terrific defensive fighter, A very good offensive fighter, much underrated. A lot of people don't really appreciate how good of an offensive fighter he was, particularly when he was at his best weight, which was 130 pounds. But I think that Sugar Ray Leonard would get the better of Floyd Mayweather 9 out of 10 times because I just think that he could do everything Mayweather could do, but he could do it at a higher level. He had more power. I think he was a better offensive fighter I think he was just as fast, if not faster, and he was bigger and stronger. So that's my answer to that. Chris, what do you think? Was this all a diabolical plan by Adam Gase from the very beginning?
2: Uh just first, Peter, I love you. Um, <laughs> second, uh I mean, man, yeah, it, it, the Greg I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're right, Greg Williams messed it all up. They could have they could have had whoever they wanted, but Greg Williams and Boyer messed it all up. Uh, definitely uh sh- sh- shot Gase's a brilliant diabolical plan. Um yeah, <laughs> yeah. um yeah, as far as I'm going sugar Ray too. Uh, obviously I I was older and saw much more of Floyd and Mayweather's fights. And why I respect the a lot of what Floyd has done as a fighter, I also hate it. I I hate that style. I get <laughs> it and it's smart because that's why he's undefeated. But I, I, I will always give in any type of fight if it's close I will always give the uh, edge to the the more offensive the more aggressive guy I just I just think you deserve credit for that if you're pressing the issue and you take a couple more punches because you're the one pressing the issue i'm I'm going to be willing to overlook those. Uh, more punches and give you credit for pressing the issue. But I also agree with everything you said about how Sugar Ray could, have, could do everything Floyd could do and he could be more offensive and do more. And I do think he would be too big and too strong for Floyd. And Floyd's defense would would wear down and, and Sugar Ray would be able to get some more shots in there.
3: That's going to wrap up part one of the Weekend Mailbag. We'll be back with part two tomorrow. In the meantime, make sure that you're following Chris on Twitter at CNimbly and at Jets Insider and reading his very big deal work over at JetsInsider.com, where you can also read some terrific work from Mr. Michael Nania. If you've missed any of the podcasts from earlier this week, you should go ahead and check it out. Manish was on on Wednesday to go through all the midweek news. Talked about the Rick Dennison story that we touched on last week on the mailbag, but really went in depth on it. Talked about Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Cromartie, and a lot more. So if you missed it, make sure you get caught up. On Tuesday, we did a brand new roundtable with Daryl Slater, who came back to the show for the first time in a couple of months. Darrell's back on the Jets beat, at least temporarily, and he had a really interesting perspective on things because he spent part of last season covering the Jets, and then part of the season on the outside looking in, covering the general NFL and the Giants, so... He saw things from inside the Jets' bubble and outside the Jets' bubble. And as always, Daryl hit the nail on the head a ton of times during the show. So if you missed that, give it a listen. Two other roundtables as well, including a brand new one with Christian Winfield, the beat reporter covering the Brooklyn Nets for the New York Daily News, also a huge Jets fan. We got to talk about the state of the Jets, what they should do going into 2020. And on top of that, we compared ownership situations with the Knicks, the Nets, and the Jets. Fascinating discussion. If you missed that, you want to listen to that as well. And yesterday, dropped a brand new roundtable with Ed Valley, the CEO of Empire Weather, who you know from his weather reports during the season on our pregame report. And then, of course, my buddy Chris Walker, president of Retaliate First Marketing. thing about Chris that I love is he's really sharp. And on top of knowing his football, he knows exactly how to communicate strategies. And he knows how to put in place an effective battle plan. So, he's well worth listening to on this subject because he combines his knowledge of football and his ability to put together a strong battle plan. So, you could hear that when you listen to the roundtable. And then Michael Nania was on on Monday to get into our latest edition of the Sam Darnold Project part 4. Remember, he is breaking down every single snap Sam Darnold has taken as a pro. He grades those plays, then he grades the games, and then he grades the season overall. But each game gets a different grade. He's got a color-coded chart. He explains the criteria. Much more transparent than PFF and much more accurate, too. We finished the 2018 season this week talking about that strong stretch that Sam Darnold had at the end of the 2018 season when he came back from injury. So if you missed that, you definitely want to give it a listen to get Michael's insights. And it's always fun to hear about Sam Darnold. If you haven't had a chance to give us a five-star review on iTunes yet, if you could do that, we'd really appreciate it. You could do that for Joe Caparoso's Turn on the Jets podcast. We'd appreciate that too. It's an easy way to help out the show if you enjoy what we're doing. It doesn't take you much time. It doesn't cost you any money, but it's a huge help. So if you could do that for us, we'd be very grateful. And it does a lot to allow us to continue to bring you the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts. And for that, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets digital and turnonthejets.com